ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends, and welcome back for another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm the great Brian Last. It's a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down the road of wrestling history, sharing his personal tales along the way. Without any further ado, the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, we have a mighty big one this week. Yes, we do. Uh, a, a tremendous one. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, Bobby Shane was a personal friend of mine, and I, 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 I want to do him proud here. I think he really deserves a, a tribute. Uh, he was one of the greats. Uh, uh, before we go there, though, I, I, I kind of want to thank the listeners, uh, you know, all of the Studcast listeners uh, and uh, the patrons. Uh, the response for the last uh, Super Studcast has just been phenomenal. Uh, the Terry Funk and and Stan Hansen, and uh, just uh, wanted to let them know how much uh, I appreciate uh, their support and uh, and the great comments. And it's just been a, a great experience for me. And and this is is going to be something today that uh, I think we're we're both going to get into. I know you you like a lot. Of this this is a action packed program full of a lot of information. And uh, because this guy was a something special. Uh, Right at the top, too, I want to correct something. I, and you've gotten me into this thing here, Brian, about being correct about what I say. And I, I want to go back and correct. Uh, I, I said that the auditorium in West Palm was built in, uh, in 1970. It was actually built in 1965. I found that out. And the capacity is not 8,000, as I said. It's actually 7,000. So that, before we go any further, that kind of clears that up. And uh, today... Uh, I'm, I'm hopefully going to be right on with everything uh, that we're going to be talking about. Uh, and I want to jump right in here. Uh, uh, Bobby Shane's real name was Robert Lee Schoenberger. Uh, he was born on August the 25th, 1945 in St. Louis, Missouri. Now, St. Louis, Missouri is a prominent city in wrestling uh, because of one gentleman, a guy named Sam Muchnick. And it is the home of the National Wrestling Alliance. Uh, since its inception in 1948, and and that National Wrestling Alliance is obviously the largest, most powerful organization of professional wrestling promoters ever in history, 
and uh, Sam Mutzik is kind of responsible for it. So before I get heavily into Bobby, I think uh, to lay the foundation here, I want to kind of give fans an idea of where what Bobby saw as a young kid. He was born in 1945. He happens to be living in the premier wrestling city in America of St. Louis. And that Sam Mutznick, uh, we won't go too much into Sam's history, but Sam, to me, he's, he's basically, he's the Pete Rozelle of wrestling. Uh, how Pete Rozelle, uh, what Pete Rozelle did for the National Football League, Mutznick, uh, along with some other promoters, like my grandfather, Roy Welch, uh, they were instrumental in establishing the National Wrestling Alliance in 1948. And prior to that, there were champions. Everybody kind of recognized their own world champion. And with the National Wrestling Alliance came an agreement among uh, several different promoters, not just in America and, and in Canada and in Mexico, but all around the world, Australia, Japan, a lot of other countries got on board with the National Wrestling Alliance, and they recognized one champion, and it made it a lot less confusing for wrestling fans around the country. So we're in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a tremendous, really a great wrestling town. And uh, this, this city is operated different than other cities. It's operated as if it's its own territory. Uh, it it is that's Mutznick's town. It's, it's the only town he runs. He occasionally ran some spot shows, and I'm I'm aware of that because I spent a lot of time there. But Mutznick was the first president of the National Wrestling Alliance, and Sam had a great eye for talent, and he recruited. What Sam did with his city is he ran his city not every week. He ran it every other week, and he ran it on Friday nights, and he knew everybody's talent and he 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 would just pick and choose from everybody's territory one guy here one guy there from all of the best and fly them into St. Louis and every other week the best wrestling in the world took place in St. Louis uh I was really lucky I was I happened to be one of those guys that got recruited I was in Florida Sam took a liking to me for whatever reason and I started being brought to St. Louis. And I was there every, practically every show for almost two years. A lot of time I spent in St. Louis on Friday nights. And I would stay over sometimes, not work Saturday night, wait to do the TVs on Sunday. Uh, and you got to see the very best wrestlers in the world. Uh, uh, when you got off the plane, you know, you, you didn't know who you were going to wrestle a lot of time. And you would get to the building and you'd have all these famous people and, and the famous wrestlers in there. And the cards were just phenomenal. They're tremendous cards. Uh, so in, our, in my opinion, that's where they groomed the NWA champions. Now, in the early 70s, Jack Briscoe began to take these trips out in 70, 71, 72. Uh, I would ask him, you know, I said, Jack, what are you doing on the weekends, man? You're never here anymore. And he would go, I'm in St. Louis. And I think they were already grooming him for that world title. And so 
So when Sam invites me there and I start spending a lot of time there, I don't know. Nobody tells you those type of things. They certainly never said it to me. And I don't think they ever said it to Jack that, you know, we're looking at making you a world champion down the road here. But I was really flattered by it. By I knew that wrestling in that city and, 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 the, and the type of quality of talent that you wrestle, it meant that you were going places. And I was two years in or less than two years in as a pro. And I was beginning to be shipped to St. Louis on weekends to, to do this. So uh, he had he had all types of uh, some of the guys that I used to work with, you know, uh, the, the guys that I had never met. Now, these are first time I ever meet these guys. And I'm I'm from a wrestling family. I, I've got, I, I got some knowledge of who's good and who's not. And a lot of them I just heard about, seen them in the magazines, never actually met them. And I'm going to meet Harley Race. I'm going to meet Pat O'Connor, Johnny Valentine, Terry Funk, Gene Kaninsky, Ivan Koloff. Like Jack Lanza, Bobo Brazil, Baron Sakluna, Bill Miller, Hans Smith, Tokyo Joe. I mean, the list just goes on and on. I'm I'm involved with the best in the world. It's it's really a tremendous spot for me as a young wrestler to get this opportunity to to be involved with something like this and then to be involved with all these guys. St. Louis was certainly at many times an all-star team of the NWA where the top stars from the various territories would go in there. And of course, like you said, a lot of the young guys that went in there, you can kind of tell who was being groomed for a potential future world title run. Ted DiBiase, Ric Flair, guys who as the 70s went on would go in and out of St. Louis with them being looked at as potential future champions. It is in this environment and in an environment where... Wrestling is treated with legitimacy, where the actual wrestling end of it is played up in St. Louis. It's in this that Bobby Shane grows up. It's it. That's that's what exactly what I'm trying to, to trying to uh, have the fans be able to picture here. But he's going to see as a young kid now. He's born in '45, so by the time it's '55, he's 10 years old. And he's going to be watching Luthez and uh, Buddy Rogers and, uh, like I mentioned, Pat O'Connor, uh, Killer Kowalski. He's going to see Dick the Bruiser as a young guy. Bruno Sammartino as a young guy. The Sheik. I mean, his 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 experience as a as a person that the young kid that wants to get in the business. He's going to see the absolute best. And I can imagine how fired up he must have been to see those television programs. And Sam had a great program. He had a different concept of doing television than other people back in those days. He did his television program from a hotel ballroom, the Chase Hotel. And you wrestled in a ballroom. Uh, People sat at round tables. It was it was like a. It was a totally different experience than any place else where you wrestled in the country. Everybody else back in this, uh, my day uh, were still in studios, most of them. Uh, so that made it really different in, in that respect alone. So kind of laid a foundation here of what St. Louis is all about and, and where he's at and what he sees as a young kid. And when he gets ready to start wrestling and start to start to try to make a name for himself and find someone to train him, he finds one of the best who is 
who is a role model for him. And, and that guy it was Wild Bill Longson. Wild Bill Longson uh, was one of the biggest consistent draws of all time in St. Louis, and especially back in those days. And he was actually part owner of the St. Louis territory, the St. Louis office. He had a piece of that action along with Sam. So you couldn't get a better guy to train you. Uh, Wild Bill Longson, and I don't know a lot of fans out there know much about Wild Bill Longson, but he, but prior to the NWA, he, he was world champion three times three different times uh, in different areas, obviously, because there's no there's no uh, organization of the National Wrestling Alliance at that point. And in 1970 and 1942, he beats uh, Sandor Zabo, uh, becomes a world champion. In 1943, he wins a world championship from Bobby Manigoff. Uh, in 1947, he beats Luthez just prior to there being in, in NWA. Uh and, and oddly enough, which is really, I, my grandfather, I remember telling me about this, and he said that that Longson came in as the world champion prior to Thez, prior to the NWA, and wrestled his brother, Roy's brother, Herb, Herb Welch, and Herb was the world junior heavyweight champion, had been undefeated for about four years at that point, and they wrestled a match, I think it may be, I don't know if this ever been done before, but I feel like it might have been the first time ever that a world heavyweight champion wrestled a world junior heavyweight champion for the world title, the world heavyweight title. Uh, pretty a tremendous event and a great, great honor for for uh, Herb to wrestle a guy like Wabell Longson. And, uh, and it said a lot for what Roy was doing in Tennessee at that point. This patch took place in Nashville. And uh, it kind of set the scene for Roy to be one of the founding members of that NWA that's being set up. Of course, Wild Bill Longson was one of the biggest stars in wrestling history, specifically during the war years in St. Louis. Right. He was he was one of the very best. Uh, uh, Wild Bill Longson, uh, there was a fact here that, that someone was telling me that that he, he once had his back broken by a man Mountain Dean in San Francisco. I don't know if this was a shoot or not, uh, and and how it happened or anything else. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about Man Mountain Dean, but I know he was a very big guy. And uh, so Longson gets his back broken by him. He's out of wrestling, obviously, for a long time. Uh, but then 18 months later, he goes back to San Francisco and he wrestles uh, Man Mountain Dean again, but he's under a mask. And I don't know if this was kind of a shoot in which somehow he says, I want to come in, I want to work, and I'd like to wrestle my Man Mountain Mike. And uh, he goes in and and he breaks Man Mountain Dean's leg. He actually breaks his leg in a shoot style in the match. And when he breaks his leg, he gets up and takes his mask off and throws it on the mat and stands over top of him with a big grin on his face. I heard this story and I was like, wow, man, was it a shoot or was it not a shoot? You know, it's a, uh, that had to be a phenomenal, phenomenal match. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether they, how they, I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have seen the video of that one. You wore a mask in San Francisco, didn't you? I certainly did. <laughs> 
you know, and that, that's that. You know, I kind of that's kind of why I wanted to mention that because uh, oddly enough, I'm I'm going to wrestle under a mask in San Francisco in 1985, the only match I ever have, same building, Cow Palace, you know, um, old classic building, you know. So, so it's it kind of we have some parameters there in which we're we're basically somewhat similar and somewhat alike in a way. Uh, I didn't break anybody's leg, thank goodness. Uh, but I did wrestle that night. I think I wrestled against, I know I wrestled against Snook, Snooker, Superfly Snooker. And it was a tag match, and I can't remember his partner, but I remember my partner was Brian Nobbs, a young Brian Nobbs. That's right. Pretty ridiculous there. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that, and he was under a hood as well. So, you know, crazy, crazy night. Uh, so, anyway, that kind of lays a foundation for fans to to realize that this young guy is – He's in the he's in the apex of wrestling of of territories and the, in the best city in the world for wrestling, uh, and he he sees them all and he has a great trainer obviously that's been there and done it and and uh, so he, he's five nine when he grows up and he's ready to start and he starts training at seventeen years old that's amazing to me and he's wrestling at eighteen. That's just absolutely phenomenal to me. Uh, having grown up in the wrestling family and, and wrestled all my life, then gone through training for a considerable length of time to, to do the pro stuff and, and learned a little shooting in the early days and you, you transition to pro and, and you start doing some other things. To be able to accomplish that as a 17-year-old and start in the ring at 18 – that to me says a lot for the talent that, that this kid's got, uh, because you, most people, most wrestling promoters are going to laugh at you at that age. You're going to go, well, "Are you kidding, man? How old are you, kid?" You know, and you're going to say, "Well, I'm I'm 18." You know, <laughs> so there weren't a lot of guys that got that kind of start at that early an age, and he was lucky enough to to basically start his 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 career in the AWA with Vern Gagne. Uh, Vern up there runs a fabulous operation, always did uh, the entire time he was there. He's got that Olympic background. He was a tremendous amateur, uh, wrestled on the Olympic team. And uh, he's like, he's like uh, Eddie Graham in Florida. He has this tremendous respect for wrestling. And he applies that within his territory. Uh, he filled his territory like Eddie tried to do, and Eddie was pretty darn good at that as well, as well with guys that knew how to wrestle. And that's what he wanted to expose uh, Vern. And, uh, and Eddie was the same way. Uh, they, and that had a great influence on Bobby Shane as an 18-year-old kid working in in that territory uh and being around Vern, uh I, I Vern Fern is a tremendous guy i know Vern, i know Vern well and uh and he is a great 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 guy and i could just imagine that being a young guy at 18 years old and and just sitting in the dressing room with Vern Gagne and talking to him is an experience in itself and to be surrounded by other guys uh, that are equally as talented is really, really a, a feather in a guy's cap at 18 years old. Uh, this kid 
this you don't get much better opportunity to start than that. Considering how much people have said about Bobby's skills, his mental skills in wrestling, his ability to potentially one day be a booker, and how entertaining he was in the ring, he certainly had a good foundation with the actual wrestling. That's exactly what he got. And he got a, and he got, he got a wrestling foundation. He, if he didn't know how to shoot, he learned a lot of it. Uh, he saw a lot of uh, matches, and he worked with a lot of guys that, that that put shooting moves on you, and they did things to you that you you wouldn't normally have other wrestlers do. So he got this phenomenal start, and he's in the AWA. Uh, and then he begins, he starts, he starts in 1963 at 18 years old. By 1965, he is an, a, uh, NWA U.S. champion, uh, in the, in the, within the ADA parameters. Now that the AWA, I mean, uh, with Vern's territory, you know, you just, uh, it it spread everywhere. I mean, it's it's all in the northern part of the country, and uh, at sometimes as things went on, they they went as far as uh, San Francisco, and and gosh, uh, they had influences everywhere. Vern was very well liked. He, I don't think Vern was ever a part of the National Wrestling Alliance, but Vern never missed the National Wrestling Alliance meeting. He was like Vince Senior. Uh, Vince Sr. was there at all the NWA meetings. Vern was there at all the NWA meetings. These major organizations that were running uh, and not joining the NWA, they were run by guys smart enough to realize that I need to I need to work with these people. I need to to cooperate with these people because there's a lot of power within that organization of promoters worldwide. And if they if they made a mistake or if they weren't in a, in good standing with the NWA members, it could have been a real problem for both of the organizations, the WWF and Vern's organization. Between starting in St. Louis, working for Vern Gagne, and eventually, of course, working in Georgia and Florida and Australia, it seems like Bobby Shane really had a lot of good connections throughout the wrestling business. Yes. He's making them. That, that, that's what's happening here. He, he starts out in a great area. He's going to win the, the Midwest Championship in 1967. Uh, he's going to be the Nebraska champion in 67. Uh, he's going to slide on out to, to the Mid-Pacific uh, out there in, in Hawaii, which is a great territory. Uh, and I've been through there. And uh, I've wrestled out there, too. And that that was a super place to work and and always had great talent out there. And actually out there, he, he and Nick Bockwinkle, of all people in 1969, are going to be the Pacific Tag Team Champions. So, gosh, when you've got an, a partner like Nick Bockwinkle and you've been in the business for, for you know, basically for six years, you're going to pick up a lot of stuff. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle, to me... I was never in the NWA world champion, but I don't know that he wasn't as good as any NWA champion we ever had. And I really love Nick Bockwinkle. He spent a lot of time with me when I broke in in Georgia. He was the champion. He was the Georgia NWA, Georgia heavyweight champion. And he was so classy. I just had such respect. I wanted to emulate Nick Bockwinkle. I wanted to be a Nick Bockwinkle. I mean, he wore the suits. Uh, he was he was kind of like Flair, and I got it. Flair comes from there. 
okay, flares out of that same part of the country and flares influenced a lot, I believe, by Nick Bockwinkle because Bockwinkle was already a star about the time Flair's getting off the ground and, and becoming the big star himself. So the, he's got that, that influence. Uh, then he's going to go, oddly enough, to, to Gulf Coast. He's going to go to my dad's territory that he started back in the 50s, uh, the Gulf Coast wrestling down there and all along from, from basically New Orleans to Tallahassee was dad's area and then he sells it to the fields brothers and bobby's going to go down there and and now we're he's going to win there the alabama championship title which i held several times same old title 1969 and he not only goes in there to a territory at that point and i know a little bit about this because I know they were my relatives, the Fields brothers there, and I know that they were suffering. Their their business wasn't so good, and he goes in there, and they put him over, and he starts to book, do a little booking. You know, he's he's been in the business a few years, you know, basically, but still not that long. He's been in business six years, and he's doing the booking, and he lights up that Gulf Coast area. Uh, they have a great run in there with Bobby Shane. Uh, so he's, he's making a name there for himself. He goes from there into Georgia. Uh, he comes in there about the time I'm starting, actually. Me and Rob are just beginning to wrestle. Great crew in there. I've, I've talked about it in previous studcasts. A phenomenal group of wrestlers in there. And he becomes two times Georgia Tag Team Champion, or Gorgeous George Jr., who is himself a pretty decent talent, too. A pretty darn good wrestler. Uh, and uh, and then one in 1971, the second time they win that championship, they win it from from my brother Rob and Bob Armstrong, who were tag champions there in 70s, late 70s, early 71. And so he's around another group. He's just moving from one area to another, and he's always uh, surrounded by this tremendous talent. Uh, he leaves Georgia. He goes right straight into Florida. And it's in a good time frame. He's, he's in there between 71. We talked about it last episode about uh, my matches with him. Uh, and he's, he's got his stuff together. He's beginning to do things that no one has done. He, he has, and I don't know that someone, and, and I may be in, you know more about this than I would, Brian, I'm sure. Yeah, I, he had one of the first valets, women valets I ever saw. I don't know if she was the first. But uh, she, he had, he had a valet, a woman, go to the ring with him uh, every every match, and uh, and I'm not sure it was the first, but this was in 1970, 71. Uh, he's going to the ring with a valet, a woman valet. Uh, he's going to become the king of wrestling prior to Jerry Lawler becoming the king of wrestling. He's going to come up with that that gimmick of the crown and the actual king. So he, this kid has got it. He's just got it going. And uh, he's, he's, he's a wonderful guy. I mean, I, I, I loved Bobby. I spent time with him, quite a bit of time with him. I really appreciated his talent. He was really, really a phenomenal worker. Uh, he's going to end up 74. He goes to Australia. 
uh, he he works. He wins the uh, the Austra Austra Asian Tag Team titles. That's what they called it out there in Australia, and, and uh, he wins it with a guy that that I really love, a guy from named George Barnes, who was the best young wrestler in Australia when I was there in '71, and again in '73. Now George Barnes is a star there by '74. And he and Bobby Shane uh, win that tag team championship out there in Australia. So it's just, uh, it's a, he's, he's really gelling here and he's really learning the business. And he's being, he's by moving around from territory to territory, he's experiencing different styles and different wrestlers. And that's what it takes to become a great wrestler. You can't stay with the same territory and the same guys and ever really take it to the next level. And by changing these territories every year, every other year or so, he is really headed for the big time. What do you remember about wrestling with him? I remember, I remember a lot of things about wrestling with Shane. Uh, I was very impressed with his speed. Uh, of course he's five, nine and he's only about 225 pounds and I'm quite a bit taller and everything. I always tried to match speed with guys, no matter what size they were. But it was pretty difficult with Bobby. He was very quick. Uh, he had the ability as and now he's he's three years older than I am. So he and he's been in wrestling for considerably more. I start in seventy. He starts in sixty three. Now he's by seventy and seventy one when we're wrestling. He's I'm I'm a year in and he's seven years in. He's been all these places already, and he calls the he's the heel. He calls the match. He calls always one of the greatest matches. I really remember that about him. He just had that innate ability to know when to get off the mat and when to get back down. Uh, he just would call these matches that he could have taken a guy that couldn't couldn't work at all and make him look good if he wanted to. And that's what great wrestlers are able to do. And Bobby had that ability. He called a tremendous match. He had that speed. Uh, he, he liked to, he liked to call finishes and that's part of growing as a, as a booker. It's the first stage of becoming a great booker is you learn how to think about the finish of a match and how can you get those fans really up and what you can do at the end of the match that's going to make it spectacular. And Bobby was great at that. Even as a young guy at this, at that age, he was, he would like to, he always wanted, you know, and, and he had this ability, which is really odd. He could discuss things with bookers. Uh, some guys don't have that ability. Uh, a booker would talk to you and he say, well, I'd like to do this. And they would, they would have a suggestion or they, they didn't like it. Uh, Bobby had a way of smoothing those bookers and he would say, Hey, well, how would we do this? And let's add that. And that was, and it always was a good suggestion. It always made the match even better. Uh, and the thing I remember the most about him, Brian, oddly enough is he had a way of slapping you in the back. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, I've been hit hard. Uh, uh, his slap was, it was a combination of a Johnny Valentine hammer and an open hand as hard as you could hit somebody. And it hurt. It just, I used to tell him uh, after about four or five times working with him, I said, Bobby, uh, you know, 
you don't have you don't have to hit me like that. You know, you don't have to hit me, or slap me that hard. Uh, and so, uh, oddly enough, that's one of the things I kind of remember about him. He just had this ability to 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 carry a match to 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 build the build the crowd. It's it's a lost art. <laughs> it's not there in the sport anymore. It's that storytelling. And uh, he was the great storyteller. He grasped it. He, 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 he understood what it takes to make it wonderful for those fans out there watching. And he was a super little heel. He had tremendous heat. Uh, he was just really a phenomenal worker. We will return in a moment with more Bobby Shane, including talk about the tragic plane crash that took his life. But first, we want to give you a little taste of what's in store for you with Super Stud Cast number eight, Kevin Sullivan and the Honky Tonk Man. Listen to this right now. Most wrestling podcasts are lucky to have one special guest, but in the last Super Stud Cast, the stud accomplished the impossible and brought us two of the greatest wrestling stars of all time live. Now he continues his amazing Super Stud Cast series with double trouble again. I've got the title, I've got the belt. And tonight, I'm going to get the woman. This time, he ropes one superstar from the WWE. We whipped him every way we could. Left him land, just like a chicken killing. And you call it a fight. And another from WCW. When you lay your weary head down and the demons dance with delight, you're wondering what I'm going to do. You're wondering how far I'll go. Both are friends with each other and have history with a stud that goes back decades. They want to hear the honky-tonk man sing. They want to hear me do my honky-tonk song. One claims to be the greatest WWE Intercontinental Champion ever. The WWE's greatest Intercontinental Champion of all time. The honky-tonk man. My mama named me the honky-tonk man because I was born on a pool table at Joe's Bar and Grill in Memphis, Tennessee. And he joins WCW's unpredictable mystic evil one, Kevin Sullivan. I went to the Amazon River of my mind. Dance with the light. There is no control anywhere but here. I control everything. In my life, there has been one power, and that power is the power of darkness. It's going to be another record-breaking super stud cast. There has to be a sacrifice made today. Saddle it up, cinch it up tight, and hold on. This is going to be another hell of a ride. That wasn't a fight. We whipped them boys up and down the ring. We whipped them all over the aisle. We whipped them out the front door. Here comes Super Stud Cast number eight with the Honky Talk Man, Wayne Ferris, and Kevin Sullivan. To get Stud Cast number eight, log on to patreon.com slash studcast or tnstud.com. There you hear it, Super Stud Cast number eight. Kevin Sullivan and the Honky Talk Man. Everyone's talking about this one. It is available to you for only $2.99 at patreon.com slash studcast or tnstud.com. We'll have more information about that at the end of the program. But, Ron, let's return to Florida. Let's return to Bobby Shane. Yes. So we're, Bobby's here, and, he, and he's been here for a little while. He comes in in, in 70, late 1970, uh, uh, early into 71, uh, all the way into 72, uh, we're wrestling for the Cadillac and West Palm beach, uh, late 1971. Uh, he's found a home. Uh, they love him. 
he he just he's, he's a remarkable talent and he they're going to use him in very good ways uh, he's going to be a booker I, I mean everybody that knows bobby and spent some time with him you know knows that this kid is not just going to be a wrestler all his career and i i've been around a lot of guys and and you can tell when a guy has the the mindset of going beyond just being a wrestler and being a booker and and in some cases of being an owner you know uh, you 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 think differently than other wrestlers you don't just come there every night and do what you don't normally do and and not pay attention to what's going on out there in the ring and other matches uh, he had that he had that mindset of I want to go I want to be bigger than just a wrestling star I want to be the man that that handles the book and that figures out how to put people in the right place at the right time and uh I think he could have gone on and become an owner uh, had had he not had this this horrible situation that developed for him. And uh, it's it's strange uh, talking about a guy in which you have such such a feeling for. And I never lost that. Uh, I remember hearing about the plane crash uh, when it happened and. It just it it shocked me. It shocked me, and uh, and it it bothered me a lot because I I knew what wrestling lost in that plane crash, and uh, it's it's hard to get past that sometimes. You create such friendships and such respect and admiration for some guys that when something tragic happens to them, it's it just. It's hard to get past, Brian. It's very difficult. Well, before we get to what happened that night, I do want to ask you a question. In terms of guys who you can see they may have the potential to one day be a booker or they may have the desire to one day be a booker, how do they get noticed by a promoter? Because obviously there are some promoters who just think of the wrestlers as employees. There are some promoters who are really hands-on and very involved in everything that was happening. How do you get noticed if you're someone who has a creative mind for the wrestling industry, at least back in those territory days? Well, I'll give you an example, uh, and this is this fits very well. Uh, when I'm going to St. Louis in 1973 and 74, uh, Pat O'Connor is doing the booking for for uh, Sam and Pat comes to me when I first go in there and he, 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 I don't know. He asked me one night, he says, uh, it, well, what it really starts is he comes and he sits down with me and the, whoever I'm wrestling and he starts talking about the match and, you know, would you guys do this? Would you guys do that? I'm accustomed to, because I come out of Florida and and yeah I've got Leo Garibaldi and I've got Eddie Graham and I've got these brilliant minds that have brilliant finishes that are just so far advanced and beyond Pat and I love Pat O'Connor becomes a personal friend of mine comes and wrestles for me in Southeastern uh just but he he did not have what I was accustomed to. And I was already been there, having been there a couple of years, I was getting a feel for how you develop a finish and, and what works and what doesn't work. So he would talk to me about a match and, and I would very nicely say, well, Pat, you know, since you want to do that, what if we did this? 
and he would, I'd see his eyes light up sometimes like, wow, geez. So he would, he would started going, he started saying, Ron, well, why don't uh, you figure you're, you're finished tonight. And that, that was fine with me. It gave me an opportunity to really have a hands-on deal. And, and I realized that I'd be doing Pat a favor and I'm doing Sam a favor because uh, I got, I got a lot more ideas than what Pat's got. So, so I would start um, doing one match and then it turned out the, the, the longer I was going and I was going there pretty regularly, he would say, uh, Ron, uh, you, you figure yours. And, uh, how about figuring this second match for me, you know? And, uh, so I would say, okay, well, who's in it and what do you want to do? Who's over? You know, I, I, I want this guy to win or whatever. And I would take it from there and eventually, before I finish in St. Louis, uh, Pat's basically, you know, he, he meets me at, when I come in the building and he's like, Ron, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, I, I wanted to work programs there. Nobody worked programs in St. Louis. I asked him, I said, Pat, uh, you know, I'm working here with Terry Funk and, uh, you know, the, the crowd's really liking us and we're, they're really into it. And we, we had a great finish last week. And what about next week we come back with a Texas death match or something? And, and he would, no, 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 Ron, can't do that. And I was like, why? Why can't you do that? And he says, Sam don't want it. Sam does not work program. He doesn't leave the two guys. He don't want to bring the guy back in a return match. I said, geez, man, how do you draw money? You know what? Why? Why would you not? Sam doesn't want it. It was always Sam doesn't want it. Sam doesn't want it. So I think that's where that's where I started becoming a booker. I started thinking like a booker. And uh, the fact that I'm dealing with a former world champion, O'Connor, I mean, he's a tremendous talent and uh, and he really liked me. He he loved my ideas. He loved my finishes. Uh, uh, he loved my work. Uh, I really, I really admired him, and and I think he had a lot of respect for me. But that's kind of how it starts when you start having young guys in your territory. Uh, and I've got some experience with this, and I'm a young guy, and I was, I had a lot of guys who were much older than me, and I'm, I own the territory, and I would sit and talk to them, and you could tell who was smart. You could tell who had a future. You could tell who had ideas. Uh, and I always let them roll. I, you know, uh, I, I let guys have their head, so to speak. I, I encouraged them. I would tell my guys, you know, here's what I want to do. But I want you to think about what we're doing and come to me. You get an idea. You come to me with it. And, and let's see if we can implement it. We can put it in there. If it's a great idea, we're going to do what you had an idea. That really stimulates young wrestlers to not just get in their car after the matches and ride home, uh, to get in that car and to think a little bit about, gosh, what if we did this or what if we did that? And you can tell pretty quickly those people, those guys that have got it or want to have it, uh, because you'll start getting that that um, you'll get those those responses from them. You'll get those ideas from them. You'll be able to tell this this person here is pretty darn sharp, and uh, and he's not going to just be a wrestler probably his whole career.
Let's go back now, Ron, to February 20th, 1975. At this time, you would have been in Knoxville. You had gone several months earlier at the end of 74, and you had started Southeastern. So you were no longer in Florida, and that's where Bobby Shane was on this night. That's it. Bobby Shane's still there. I mean, he comes in there in the early 70s. He runs out for a little bit into Georgia. He he, he might have left a couple of times, uh, but he would pretty quickly come back. Uh, Shane is becoming a fixture in Florida. Uh, they, they recognize his ability, not only in the ring, but his ability with finishes and his ability to, to become a booker. In fact, uh, this night, this, this horrible night, uh, he is already uh, an assistant booker at this point. Uh, and he is, they're grooming him to become the booker to follow Bill Watts. Bill Watts has come in there in 1973, uh, right after the, the war in Georgia. And he comes there and, uh, somebody replaces him in Atlanta and Watts uh, turns dusty babyface. God, the rest of Florida, it's all history for Florida. Once that happens, Florida District nights. And uh, then Bobby Shane's a part of this. He's there. He sees all this start, and he is helping now with Watts, with the booking. Uh, I'll guarantee you, knowing Bill Watts, he's a very, very sharp guy. Bill Watts was... Not just thinking about Bobby Shane taking over the book from from him there and him go, and Bot, Watts leaves there. He goes back to Oklahoma to his home and he ignites Mid South. Uh, Watts is a brilliant booker and a great great mind as, as a promoter as well. And he's looking at Shane for future. I'll guarantee you. He says, "I'll leave here, Bobby. I'm going to leave you in this seat that I'm in now." But when I get to Oklahoma and I get things fired off, you're my man. You're going to be my booker. You, yeah, He might have even made himself a partial owner with Bill Watts because he was such a talent and he was such a level-headed guy and a sharp guy. So yeah, it's, it's crazy about how, how business is sometimes. But uh, So we're, we're, we're there in Miami. And this is a strange event. All of this is its the fickle finger of fate, I guess, is what this is all about. Uh, actually, and, I, and I've talked to Dennis McCord, and I've talked to Buddy Colt. They're on a plane. They're on this plane with uh, – now, Dennis McCord, for those fans out there that don't know, that's Austin Idol. Dennis McCord, actually, after this plane wreck, is going to morph from Dennis McCord into Austin Idol. And part of that, I think, is because of this plane wreck. But on this plane is Gary Hart, who's a, a managerial-wise a phenomenal talent. He has been a wrestler before, but he's a crucial element in this huge uh, ignition of, of Florida in 74 when Dusty turns babyface. In 73, it just ignites business and uh and he's a cr crucial element because he has all these talent, all these wrestlers. He has that army. I think back in those days they called it Hart's Army. And and gosh, what they had a 
fabulous and phenomenal heel crew. Uh, Shane's not really a part of that crew. He's kind of a separated element. There's so much talent in Florida at this time frame, 73, 74, that, that Hart has his army of guys and then separated. The, you've got uh, Shane underneath that army of guys. You've got Buddy Colt underneath that army of guys. You just have a phenomenal, phenomenal and monumental crew. So they all, they fly on the, and they're, and they're scheduled, I t and I talked to the, they're scheduled to fly. Uh, Austin Idol's not supposed to be on that plane. Austin Idol's not supposed to be there. Uh, he had a Delta flight that day. He's going to fly down on Delta to Miami, and then he's going to fly back, spend the night, fly back the next morning. Um, and it, and it happens to be that Gary Hart lives in the same complex as, as Dennis, as Dennis McCord, Austin Idol. And Gary says, you know, I'm flying with Dusty and with uh, Buddy Colt. I'm sorry. I'm flying with Buddy Colt tonight in his plane. Now, Buddy is, is a new pilot. He's, he's pretty green. He's bought himself a plane. Uh, and we used to do a lot of flying in these in these private planes, even back in the early 70s, once Florida started to kick off and do big business, the wrestlers would get together and they would fly to Jacksonville and they would fly. You'd take the you'd find these private plane owners and you'd get a group of guys and you'd split the the cost of the deal. Everybody paid out seventy five hundred dollars, whatever it is you got there and in 45 minutes rather than three and a half hours. And you got back in 45 minutes. You were, it was a heck of a deal. And because the territory was doing so great, everybody was getting involved in these planes. So they wanted to fly. You were, you went from riding in a private plane to owning a private plane. And that's what happens here is buddy buys himself a small Cessna and he's, He's a pilot, and he's he's learning how to fly. He's not instrument rated, but he's he's got enough knowledge that he can fly the plane. Uh, Gary Hart's on that plane that night, uh, and uh, there's an empty seat. Bobby's going to fly on that plane, and uh, Idle Idle says, "No, I'm going to take the uh, the Delta flight." And then at the last minute, he goes, "Oh, what the heck? I'll be back early." And yeah, I'll I'll, I'll go on the plane too. So. You know, there's the four guys that take off from Tampa and they fly down to wrestle in Miami. Uh, after the match, they come out. It's a it's a beautiful evening. It's a pretty night in Miami. Uh, and I've talked to, to, to Dennis, to Austin Idol, and to Buddy Cole uh, personally about this this accident. And I have a pretty good grasp of what goes on in, 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 in this whole scenario. But uh, they come out and they're there about 1130. They get into the plane and they're it's a pretty night in Miami and they start flying north to Tampa. Uh, they get to about Sarasota, which is about 50 miles south of Tampa, and it gets nasty. Uh, what's happened, what's going to happen, and I, I'm surprised, and this is maybe because Buddy was not a, an experienced pilot. He, I don't know that he knew the weather forecast, but in Florida in the wintertime, you get these fronts that come from the north, and uh, 
and you know get bad weather that starts sometimes in the in the Great Lakes up there, and it and it comes right straight down through the center of the country, and it eventually works its way into Florida. Now those fronts are they're dangerous. Uh, I've flown through fronts. Uh, I have the Ron Wright story of flying through a front going to Memphis one time. And it's, it's when you're in a small plane, it's a, it's a horrible place to be. You don't want to be in a small plane when you encounter something like this. Well, there's an approaching cold front that's coming down toward Miami, but it hasn't got in the area of Miami yet, but it's about to, about the time they take off from Miami, that front is starting to, to come into Tampa and they fly for about an hour, I think, as I remember. And I used to fly in these private planes in that trip. And it's a probably about a, a little over an hour trip. They get to Sarasota and it starts to get nasty. Uh, they, they, they're getting some weather. And so they contact the tower in Tampa and the tower says to them basically that, uh, We've closed the airport here. Uh, that to me is a, whew, that, you know, if I heard that and I'm on that plane, I'm like, wow, geez, guys. And now this is a major international airport. But at the same time, they tell him, but if you want to, there's a small airport here. It's called, uh, it's called uh, the O'Night, uh, Peter O'Night. It's the Peter O'Night Airport. It's on Davis Island. Davis Island is a small island that's just, well, it's almost in downtown Tampa. It's a very wealthy island. Uh, you got to have money to live on Davis Island. Uh, and uh, so there's an airport there, small little airport. And uh, even though they're closed there, at, uh, their, their air traffic is closed in Tampa, they tell uh, they tell Colt that hey, you know, if you want to land at Peter Peter O'Night, uh, you can you can still go to Tampa. Now these guys are flying along now, it, and and they're and I I'm going to visualize this for for fans out there. When you're in a small plane and you're starting to get weather, you're starting to bump a little bit, and it's 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 a little bit disconcerting. Uh, it's kind of like when you're in a big plane and you get that real big weather and you get a little bit of rock and roll. But in that smaller plane, you can imagine the size has a great deal of bearing on how much shaking there is, and so they're starting to get a little bit of I call it rock and roll. Uh, you know, they get a little bit of rock and roll going on on the plane, and so there's a discussion, uh, and and Austin tells me he says the the four of them say well you know and they're still flying toward Tampa but they they say well what what do y'all want to do I think Buddy and they're they're all so they take a vote Idol says that they take a vote and and uh, and he votes to go back to Sarasota land in Sarasota and rent a car and drive home and he doesn't win the vote. Obviously, he doesn't win the vote. I think the other guys are wanting to go on and get there. Uh, and because I believe the, the real problem here was, and the thing that cost everybody what, it, what this the event is going to cost them, is the fact that the tower guy says, if you want to still come in, you can land at this small airport. Now, Buddy Colt is not instrument rated. Uh, that means that he can't fly when it's really cloudy or really bad weather uh, because you have to 
you have to take special training and he's, he's just got his plane and he's not qualified to, he's really not qualified to fly in the type of weather that he's headed into. And he don't know that this weather is awaiting him either because he's not there yet. He's in a little bit of clouds and a little bit of rain, a little bit of lightning, but it's going to get much worse. So they decide let's go on to Tampa. So once they make that decision, they get into Tampa Bay. They're over the bay, and they 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 start talking to this tower uh, at the Peter O'Night Airport, small airport. Uh, now they have sacrificed that huge runway at Tampa International, a couple of them actually, uh, for a little small tiny runway on an island. It's it's like wow, you know, this is really difficult, even for a great pilot who's very experienced, uh, and even instrument rated. It, it, this front is there now. It's on top of Tampa. It's not just uh, getting there now. It's 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 bad weather, and it's got clouds and fog and a lot of lightning and a lot of wind. Everything that just scares you to death when you're in a small plane, and these guys are. All just and and I'm gonna throw this fact in. Uh, Bobby Shane can't even swim, so he's in a plane now over Tampa Bay uh, with a front that has arrived there in horrible weather, and he's he's over water almost all the time here. He's so they they finally reach this small airport. And they tell him, come on in, and they try to give him a visual as much as the, the tower does to Colt. And, but he, he's very, this is difficult. I mean, this is a tremendously uh, horrible situation that he's in, and all of them are in at this point. Uh, he doesn't want to go back now to Sarasota. So he makes an approach, and he just a little bit past the runway, uh, enough so that the tower tells him you need to pull up. And, and make a make a, a, a go around, uh, come back again. Basically, is what they do, and and they take a, make a second attempt at it. And when this happens, uh, he comes off the runway. Uh, you, he gives the power to the engines again, and instead of landing, you start to rise again. But you got to have altitude here if you're going to make a a turn right or left in an airplane, any type of airplane, especially in a small one, you have to get your altitude before you do that. Now, he he goes into a cloud. Uh, Colt tells me, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a cloud. I mean, it was already foggy, but he goes into it for the first time into an area where he can't see anything. And when he, when he does that, he gets, he gets what's called, uh, he gets a vertigo. And, and vertigo really means that, uh, you know, you just you you lose your your ability to figure out where you are. Sometimes you can't decide whether your plane's even up or down uh, when there's socked in, when you're socked in and that, those clouds are just everywhere and you can't see the end of your wings on your plane. It, you you can get disoriented, extremely disoriented. So he's trying to make a pass here. He's trying to get his altitude, and he's probably watching his speed. He's he's got all these things going on, and he tries to bank. And when he does, he begins to lose his altitude. And when you do that, uh, you're you're looking at disaster. You've got to keep that plane up there, and you've got to keep your speed. So. 
I don't know what happened, but at this point, they're, they're in real trouble. And when they make that turn, that wing contacts the water. They get down too low, and there's a crash. And to just give people a feeling for what's going on, this is, a, this is a February in Tampa. Uh, Tampa Bay is probably 55 degrees. It's cold water, and uh, it's dark. It's raining horribly. It's lightning. It's it's every horrible thing that you could imagine with being in a in a plane. And now they've they've crashed and they're in the water. Uh, so once they get in the water, uh, just before you've got Austin Idol sitting in the co-pilot seat, you've got the pilot which is uh, Colt sitting next to him. Behind uh, Colt is is Bobby, and Gary Hart is behind Austin. Uh, Gary realizes that they're in real trouble, and he he gets that first inkling that, that we're going to crash, and he, he unbuckles his seatbelt because he wants to be free. You know, I mean, good idea, maybe bad idea. Who knows when you're in this type of situation what you really should do or shouldn't do. And none of them have probably ever been in a plane wreck. So Hart unbuckles his seatbelt. Uh, Idle does not unbuckle his seatbelt. Uh, I don't know whether Buddy unbuckles his seatbelt or not, but what happens in the when they crash is that Heart is thrown the and when you I've seen pictures of this plane. I don't know how anybody I don't know how the other three guys survived it. It's just crumpled mess. It's it's horrible. Uh Hart is thrown from the plane and lands probably uh I the estimation is probably maybe a hundred yards from the actual plane where the plane ends up. Uh Buddy is thrown from the plane in an opposite direction so that they are separated and Idol is inside the plane with Bobby uh, in the water and Idol's the plane slowly begins to sink and Idol can't get his seatbelt off he's he's just struggling with it it's like uh, it's locked on him uh, and he's panicking obviously he's got his feet are down there by the he since he's in the co-pilot seat it has the same brake pedals down there that you would if you're on the pilot side of the plane and those pedals have gotten smashed into his feet so he's he's struggling now he's trying to get out of this plane before it goes down uh he's not concerned about anybody else none of these four guys at this point you're not thinking about anybody's uh anybody except yourself here to save your life and he manages somehow to get out of his seatbelt without unbuckling it, which that's a that's that's amazing feat in itself. Uh, rips his boots off, trying to get his feet out from the pedals down in the floorboard, and and escapes the plane. Uh, so he's outside the plane. Uh, you've got. Uh, Colt has gone somewhere. Uh, uh, Gary Hart's gone and somewhere else, and and there's Bobby Shane. Uh, only one on the plane. Uh, now, nobody, I don't think anybody's ever known exactly 
what what happened here with Bobby. Uh, maybe he was knocked unconscious. Maybe the the plane was smashed so much that the back seat impacted with the front seats in front of him, and he could have got his legs or his feet caught in there. He he for whatever reason, Bobby never gets out of the plane. Um, now so then that leaves the other three in the water. Uh, they're in the darkness. They're somewhere in Tampa Bay. They've lost all calculations of where they are. They don't even, they're not even together. Uh, Idle tells me he screams and nobody answers. And he, he thinks he's the only person that has survived it. And he starts trying to swim. He's got a, he's got a foot. He's got an injured foot because of the brake pedals down there. Uh, so he's not in perfect shape, uh, you know, but he, he doesn't know to where to swim uh, because he's so disoriented and it's dark and it's in a storm and everything and he can't see. And so he finally sees a light on the, now it's Davis Island. This is where the airport was when they make the pass around Davis Island and they, they crash out there off of Davis Island about 300 yards and someone has their back porch light on, thank God for these guys, and they see it. All of them are in different places, but they all see that light on that house that's about 300 yards out there from where the plane wreck was and they start going in that direction. Uh, Hart has a broken wrist. He's got a very bad back, injured back, and a, and a tremendous facial lacer, lacerations. Uh, uh, at one point, he reaches up there with his hand to feel, because his right eye can't see out of it, and he feels his, his, his scalp being gone. Part of his scalp has just been slid back. I mean, uh, these are, gosh, uh, you know, to what a horrible, horrible darn thing for all of them. Uh, so Idol's trying to go there. Hart's trying to go toward that light. And Buddy Colt, because he's in that pilot seat area, he had that the wreck has broken both of his ankles, uh, compound fractures, so that his feet don't, they're not in the position like they normally are. They're both dangling off to the side, broken. And uh, he's in that water by himself. Uh, he can't swim very well, obviously. They're all the, the disoriented, uh, tra traumatized. What a, it's, it's a horrible, horrible way to, 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 to have to, to make your way to this light. The three of them make their way to the light. They're pulled out of the water. Uh, they get actually onto a dock, and then uh, and 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 uh, Gary Hart is naked. He he it's ripped his clothes off. Uh, so and he's all bloody, and he and he goes to the back door of the house and knocks on the door, and they they come and see him. There's a naked, bloody guy in their backyard, and the people scream to go away, go away. You know they they go call the police, and the police come. Uh, and so those three guys survive. Uh, Bobby, uh, God rest his soul, Bobby doesn't make it. And uh, so Idol, he, he goes on, he comes back to the sport. Uh, he morphs, like I said earlier, he changes from, from uh, Dennis McCord to become an Austin Idol and becomes a big, big star in the sport. Gary Hart returns to wrestling too. He's able to return. 
Uh, he has lots of injuries. His life is, is very much affected by it. Uh, Buddy, Buddy has really got his ankles and his legs are, they're finished. Uh, they, there's nothing they can do. He, he will never wrestle again. And he becomes, because of Eddie and Eddie's, great uh, generosity in his in his feelings for his talent and for his wrestlers uh, puts Eddie on the show uh, the championship wrestling from Florida program with the great Gordon Soley as a commentator to back Gordon up and and uh, that gives gives a cult some way to make a living and and that basically is you know that's about as good a picture as I can paint of it Brian uh, just an extremely horrible event and it cost the wrestling industry one of the greatest stars it had and no telling where he would have gone in the next 20 years and what kind of name he would have made for himself and and i hope you're up there listening to me bobby uh, you 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 can appreciate uh, how i've tried to to portray you today because you're such a phenomenal friend to me and a phenomenal talent that uh, uh, I consider this to be the best tribute I can give you. Although you were already in Knoxville, Ron, did you hear anything about how it was covered in the Tampa press or how the fans reacted to the news? Uh, yes, I did. And, you know, that's great. I'm glad you brought up something like that. You know, what happened is, is that we're in Tampa and this is in, in, uh, 1975, uh, Tampa doesn't have a football team. It doesn't have a baseball team. It doesn't have a hockey team. It has all those things now. They have no big, huge element of athletics there, professional-wise, except for wrestling. And wrestling is big. It's really huge because they don't have any competition there with other sports. And so this story is front page. I mean, this is a big, huge, monumental event uh, that that uh, the papers go crazy with it. And and, and everybody talks about it. It's, it's a phenomenal deal. And so the next night they have Jacksonville. Jacksonville runs on Thursdays. And they go to Jacksonville, and they make an announcement. That, uh, and someone told me about this. Uh, they said, Ron, the next night they went to Jack's, which I was used to that that schedule. I'd been working it for many years. And and they and they went out and announced that uh, there had been a plane wreck. And because these guys were heels, now you've got to bear in mind that these guys were very hated by the fans. And they did a lot to get that hate. Uh, they worked hard to get that type of uh, sentiment toward them. And they announced that, you know, they were who was injured and uh, and that uh, Bobby Shane had died in the plane wreck. And uh, the crowd cheered, <laughs> you know. The, and when they told me that, I was like, I was, I was kind of upset, you know. But then when I think about it, you know, it, it was really – that to me was a real testament to the great worker that Bobby Shane was that people, even at hearing his death, booed him. Uh, he, gosh, I don't, that to me says as much about Bobby Shane and the worker that he was and, the and, the and the, his, his, how well he did what he does and how good he was at his art that, uh, they booed him even hearing that he died. Uh, nowadays, 
everybody loves Bobby Shane. It's amazing. You know, uh, the, all of that went away. Uh, and But I think it's a good way to end this this tribute is, is you know, I think uh, by being booed, it, it was in a way showing how much they loved what he did. Is they did not like him personally, but by golly, they believed everything he did, and can't say more about a wrestler than that. Ron, one question from me: Of course, you've talked about flying with Lester, which would have been before this. You've talked about flying with the Wright brothers. Well, not the famous Wright brothers, but Ron and Don Wright. In 1975, you have this happen in February. Towards the end of the year, you have the accident in Mid Atlantic which ends the career of Johnny Valentine. Ric Flair is injured in that plane wreck as well. Did you, around this time, think about what you were doing? I mean, do you reconsider flying from show to show when this happens twice in a year? And also, do you pay very close attention to who your pilot is, considering the experience factor that played a part in the accident in Tampa? Well, I'm in a different situation now. I'm in a territory. It's my own company. It's my own business. It happens to be nobody flies. In fact, the longest trip is about 130 miles. So there's no need for airplanes. Ron Wright had an airplane because he wanted to work in Memphis and some of the other cities. And he needed and he had a full-time job and he would get off from his job at Kodak and he would go jump in his plane and, and make Memphis because it was in central time and he saved an hour that way. Uh, it, so, you know, I'll tell you, I, I never flew with Ron after this. I never flew with Ron Wright again. When this happened, that I had been flying with Ron some in 74, early 75. And, I, you know, he, had, he, he offered it to me a few times. Hey, Ron, I want you to fly to Memphis. I said, I am, but I'm going to be on American Airlines. I'm going to be on a big plane, and I'm going to be with somebody that I can depend on. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and I wasn't, it wasn't being derogatory to him toward him it was it, it's it's what it's all about i mean you're in a small plane and and you're in an environment up there that can get uh, violent sometimes and and i don't care how good a pilot you are you get in the wrong place at the wrong time and uh, your skills might just not be enough to to save you or the people that are with you and uh it made me I, I really thought about it from then on every time I ever got on a plane. In fact, my dad bought a plane uh, probably in 1976, and he would he wanted me to fly with him. I would never fly with him. I never flew with him. And he kept saying, oh, come on, come on, come on. But uh, that uh, those two plane wrecks uh, had a great dramatic uh, effect on me as far as flying in a small plane. And uh, still to this day, I... Uh, I have been on a couple of small planes since, uh, but it was years later, and uh, I don't like them. <laughs> I just don't like them. It's, it's, there's a lot of danger involved there. As we begin to wrap things up here, of course, remember, you can become a friend of the stud on Facebook by liking his page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. You can also follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last, and you can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com. Classic wrestling talk and wrestling humor, the 605 Super Podcast. You can visit the Tennessee Studs website, tnstud.com, for all episodes of the Studcast, as well as the Super Studcast 
and the rest of the story. And don't forget the stud store with souvenirs and a gallery of photos that grows by the week. TNstud.com on the topic of the Super Studcast and the rest of the story. Of course, Super Studcast number eight is brand new. It's out. Kevin Sullivan and the Honky Talk Man, only $2.99 at patreon.com slash studcast or tnstud.com. The rest of the story with both guys talking to each other will come at you in a few weeks. Stay tuned for more information about that. Ron, where are we going next week? Well, we're going to go back to Florida. Uh, and uh, we're, I'm, I'm progressing along. We're in basically 1972. I'm going to get my first world championship match uh, in West Palm Beach. I'm going to wrestle Dory Funk Jr. in May of 1972. Uh, phenomenal experience. Uh, we're going to also talk about new stars that are in Florida. Florida is beginning to just uh, really go crazy. Uh, you've got Pak Song, uh, the Korean giant, basically. I mean, he's a, he's a huge, huge guy from Korea. Uh, Bob Orton Sr. is there. Uh, Dick Slater's there. Uh, there's a new Florida heavyweight champion there, Paul Jones, uh, talking about the recent losing somebody uh paul jones is is in the territory and becoming a part of it uh florida is on a trajectory uh straight up i mean the business is just really going great and we're going to to continue on like we have been and all these stud casts to keep this chronological chronological order going and uh we're going to 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 go on to Florida and very soon here and not too long, we're going to be heading off to Australia. So uh, I just um, really want to thank the fans very much for joining us and, uh, and following us. And uh, I really appreciate it. And, and uh, great sitting here in the chair with you, Brian. Really love it. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network for the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the great Smoky Mountains.